The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome Anthony Flacavento. He was a fellow food and community policy fellow associated with the Kellogg Foundation. Now the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy heads up that program. Anthony is an organic farmer. He is based in Abingdon, Virginia. He represents all that is good with food and community. He has been working on community environmental and economic development in central Appalachia for the past 25 years. And now he's going to make a giant leap in the shape of a run for Congress for the 9th District in Virginia. So welcome, Anthony. I'm delighted to have you here. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be on your program, Melinda. Thank you. And thanks for that's a hard introduction to live up to. I think we better call the, uh, the interview off after all that. <laughs> Not at all. I, I know you personally, so I, I know the, the caliber of individual you are. I love that you look at this whole idea of jobs versus environment. And it's a concept that you hope to fight because we know that economic development is very much related to a sound environment. Talk to me a little bit about that whole concept. Sure. Well, when I came to the Appalachian region, actually it was originally in eastern Kentucky in the late 70s, and then after grad school back to across the mountain in, in southwestern Virginia, one of the darkest things that you realize pretty quickly is that so often the local people, local communities are presented with this trade-off of you got to choose. It's, it's never quite said that way, but it's pretty clear. you got to choose between jobs or environmental protection. You've got to choose between jobs or health protections. you got to choose between jobs and basic labor uh, rights and protections. And we started seeing this over and over in in many different ways uh, in farming in uh, small manufacturing in forest and wood products and it continues to this day and so when i came to the region one of the first things we tried to do and had some success with was to figure out how to break through that it seemed like the economic development people were fighting the environmentalists and the and the labor folks and we were all losing was kind of our conclusion because we still had enormous environmental problems and terrible economic problems. And so we set out to uh, just try some new ways of doing things uh, with um, things like environmentally friendly wood products coming from local well-managed forests and had some success with that. And, And then with tobacco farmers, rather than trying to just get them to stop growing tobacco because tobacco was bad for people and and the crop was environmentally taxing we set out to try to find alternatives for tobacco farmers that were better for them and better for their neighbors so it's kind of been a a rather than just look at the two poles and and try to stop the worst we've always tried to find alternatives that are better for people better for the land better for the community and i love the way you say that you believe that our elected representatives should be partners 
rather than obstacles to the success of our communities. And you want to make this run for office because you want to represent the working men and women who too often feel neglected by a political system in which big corporations and partisan agendas hold undue influence. Boy, do we need you in Washington. Well, thanks. You know, it's true. I'm a lifelong Democrat, but I have to say that I entered this race certainly to try to counter the the trickle-up economics that the Republican Party's been pushing for 30 years and, and just the general notion that the only course of action we have is to keep giving more and more and more tax breaks to a, a small elite group and that they then turn around and create jobs for us. So I, I've been running to, to fight that notion, but also really because the, the Democratic Party and uh, groups like the environmental movement, in my opinion, have have also, to a significant degree, left the working person behind. In our part of the world, and I bet it's true in your part of the world too, very often the people who are closest to the land, the farmers, the fishermen and women, people working in the forest, they don't like environmentalists, and they sure don't like Democrats. <laughs> you know, you look at that and you think something's wrong with that picture. The the environmental movement ought to be allies with these folks. Not not to say that anything and everything I do as a farmer or that somebody does uh, as a logger or fisherman or coal miner should be accepted. That's not the idea. But the idea is that we need to start tying the fate of our natural world, our forests and farms and, and water, uh, connect that to the people who work the land, the people who derive their livelihood in those communities. And so I think that's part of what sets me apart a little bit from other folks that might have some similar values about protecting the environment is that my approach to it has been the sustainability approach, which means how do we create livelihoods that work for people, that build community, that create wealth locally, using the government as a partner, not solely as a regulator or enforcer. And so that's a little different approach from what the environmental movement has taken and from what the Democratic Party is associated with. And so that's uh, that's a big part of what I think makes my campaign a, a wee bit different. And I should let our listeners know that in 1995, you founded the Appalachian Sustainable Development, which became a regional and national leader in sustainable economic development. And then you left in 2009 to found a private consulting business you work nationally now, but that you are dedicated to catalyzing and basically supporting ecologically healthy regional economies and food systems. And, you know, for someone who is based in public health, I find it impossible to separate the two. And even though we have these divides between the Republicans and Democrats, don't we all or can't we all come together around healthy children clean drinking water, and clean air, because if we don't have those, we don't have much of a future, do we? No, definitely not. Uh, You're right on target. Uh, I think part of the problem, again, has been that we've been caught up in short-term, short-term gain. We've been caught up in an increasingly you know, bitter fight. It's not just partisan. It's bitter partisan, which means that you don't give ground. And, And personally, I believe that that's that's not um, the partisanship and the bitterness and the acrimony isn't equal on both sides in my assessment but nevertheless the the net result is that sensible solutions have tended to be 
uh, pushed aside or ignored, uh, things that, that make things better for people, for children, for health, and for the environment have tended to be ignored because people are mostly at each other's throats. Now, the, the food movement, the local food movement, is certainly has its struggles and its uh, battles, but in some ways it's at the leading edge of finding that, I don't want to call it middle ground, I think it's much more than a middle ground, finding that higher ground where the needs of people, employment needs, health needs, and the needs of uh, the environment are really woven together now. When you think about the gains we've made in the local food movement, some of the public policy gains through USDA, when you look at the tremendous response from uh, average citizens to uh, the availability of local foods, to farmers' markets, to organic and sustainably produced, it's not an easy road. I know as an organic farmer, it's not like uh, we're all, uh, like we've crossed over into the promised land, but it it does give you hope that this is the one area where people seem to come together, uh, kind of the way you say, recognizing that doesn't it just make sense that farmers should be able to make a decent living raising food that people need to eat in a way that protects the land and water of the community. I mean, that's kind of just like such a no-brainer, mm. and we've... Um, we're not just talking about it. A lot of us, obviously, are making that happen, and I think people are noticing it. And so it's that, that's a little ray of hope in, in an otherwise pretty dismal environment. Hmm. Well, speaking of dismal environments, let me bring up a blog post that you wrote, brilliant blog post, called Pollination, Patents, and Power. And it described farmers' plights, really, who have their land contaminated by Monsanto seed, and yet rather than you say you'd think it would be the farmers suing Monsanto for what are sometimes devastating losses, but instead Monsanto sues them. And you talk about the Federal Patent Act and how it should be protecting certainly the inventors and innovators, but it also shouldn't be making these unjust settlements against family farmers. And you, you speak about that we should change this and we can, and so my next question is how? Yeah, that is the $64,000 question. I think that what's happened with patent acts is a lot like what's happened with corporate law more broadly, as I understand it, which has been that for a very long time, accelerated in the last couple of decades, but for, for over a century, there's been this movement towards turning more and more power over to corporations, to publicly traded corporations especially, and that that power has not been accompanied by responsibility. You know, it was the reality back in the middle of the 19th century that uh, the notion of a corporate charter was that if you wanted to do business, the state would grant you a charter to enable you to do that, but that you had responsibilities beyond making money. You had responsibilities to be a responsible corporate citizen, basically. And over time, uh, starting not too long after the Civil War, court decisions started to narrow that focus so that uh, eventually it came to be that the only legal obligation of a publicly traded corporation, which is the big ones like Monsanto and so many others, was to make money for shareholders. And when you think about that, when you think about that being not one of the bottom lines, but the sole bottom line, and then you combine that with extraordinary economic power that goes with being as big as a company like Monsanto or Cargill or Walmart, 
And then you combine it further with the fact that the shareholders, by and large, have no attachment, no connection to the communities where these companies do business or sell their products or have impacts. It's a triple whammy. And so I think the the kinds of decisions that courts have generally made, siding with Monsanto in these cases, are to the layperson mind-boggling because they fly in the face of just decency and common sense. You know, just the, the facts of the case. You, almost any thinking person, when I've, when I've told that story about different farmers being sued by Monsanto because Monsanto's patented genes traveled into their field, people are just stunned. They think, well, no, wait a minute, you're not telling me the whole story. This can't be the case. So I think we've gotten to a place where corporations have this sort of power and they're being backed by the courts because we've been telling a story, again, that says there's a small group of big players who determine what happens with our economy. There's a small group of very wealthy people and and big corporations. They're the job creators. They're the drivers of the economy. They're on Wall Street and they're in a few other places. And we need to unshackle them and they'll make the world a better place through a sort of trickle-down process. We've been telling that story for 30 years since Ronald Reagan. And that myth has um, kind of taken hold of not only ordinary citizens and the media, but I think the courts. The way we'll turn that around, I believe, is by creating a completely new story. The kinds of media that you've been doing all these years are a huge part of that. And it's this undeniable force of the alternative on the ground. I mean, think of the the 10 million people a week, USDA estimates, that shop at farmers markets. What if we mobilized 10% of them? about these Monsanto decisions and what they're doing to family farmers. Think of the power of that. All these people who have gotten into the habit of buying locally, they're getting to know their farmers, they're broadening their palates and improving their health, they're supporting the local economy. I mean, that's a huge political force that we've largely left untapped. I think that's uh, that kind of group of largely middle class but but broadly based folks could help us begin to redress these these terrible concentrations of, of power in, in our food system and elsewhere. Well, I think this is a terribly important populist message, and I thank you for bringing it to the public. If you're just joining us, I want to let our listeners know that we are speaking with Anthony Flacavento. He is an organic farmer near Abington, Virginia, in the heart of Appalachian, Virginia. He has been working on community, environmental, and economic development in central Appalachia for the past 25 years, and now, thankfully, he is making a run for the 9th District in Virginia. So, Anthony, I want to ask you, what was the tipping point that led you from the farm and from your national work on sustainable economic development to make this run for Congress? Well, I tell folks that I fell off my tractor and hit my head on a rock. <laughs> that's, that's the only the only explanation that uh, could possibly cover it. Right. No, I, it was a combination of sort of a positive motivation and a defensive uh, motivation. The positive was that the work that we've been doing down here in Appalachian, Virginia, and Tennessee, and really in, in many parts of Appalachia, was just making more sense to me and to a lot of other people, and not just like liberal environmentalists, but working people. It was just kind of compelling, the uh, the turnaround in the agricultural economy, the transition for tobacco farmers, the diversification of many of our small-town economies to include 
not only food and farming, but forest products, music, art, and culture. There's just this kind of renaissance, and, and some of it was a renaissance and some was new. So I, I was looking at what was happening here the last two and a half years through my consulting business, I was finding similar things emerging all over the country, in Iowa, in Nebraska, in New Mexico, in the Arkansas Delta, usually at an earlier stage than what we had going here, but the same sorts of groups of people coming together and saying, we can do better than this, we can we can preserve our land and create better livelihoods for, for farmers and entrepreneurs and others. So this this seemed to me the right time to to take this to a, a larger a larger pulpit to be able to say, you know what, there is something other than trickle-down economics, and, and it isn't state-sponsored socialism, the way some people would have us believe. Right. Quite the opposite. It's kind of diverse, locally-rooted, locally-driven uh, economies and uh, healthier communities. That It was just a, a third way, if you want. So that was um, the positive part. I thought, in, of course, like you, I've been doing a lot of speaking and writing about these things, and, and so the word the word's getting out there, but I thought, man, if you could have somebody on the floor of Congress talking from a base of experience about this, it could really change the debate. I agree with that. And the other side was that, like so many people, I was so disheartened by the the negative side of things, by the increasing power of a small group of corporations, by the increasing shrillness of the debate, the anger that was so often a part of it, and just the lack of facts, my goodness, just such a willingness to say what they needed to say to make their point, and then the facts and reality be damned. That just got to me, and I said, well, this is crazy, but I I want to fight that. I want to fight it with facts. I want to fight it with real-life experience. And so it was kind of that, those two things, one a positive, the other a defensive motivation that that led me to gather my son and a small group of friends for a couple of meetings and say, I'm thinking about this. What do you all think? And they were all like, we'd love it if you do it. You're crazy if you do it, but we'd love it. So uh, that's that's what led me to it. Well, I admire you for doing it. And I, I love what you say that in Congress, you want to support healthy communities, sustainable farmers, and strong local food systems as your highest priorities. I can't think of anything more important we are up against a big machine, Anthony, and I wonder how can we, as citizens, help bolster your efforts? Because even though you're in Appalachia, I believe that you speak for all of us across the nation. I want to know how we can help bolster these efforts to bring truth and, and righteousness back into our government. I appreciate that, Melinda. Yeah, I think there's a number of things that people can do, whether they're in southwestern Virginia or in Missouri or anywhere else. One is if they would visit the, the campaign website, uh, which the, the easy one, by the way, is www.a49, A is in Anthony, F-O-R, and the number 9, a49.com. They'll go to our website, and that's just a good place to start. I try to do a, a fairly regular blog post. You mentioned the one about Monsanto and pollination. I've written about a lot of other stuff there. Just to see, uh, just to kind of catch the bug and to link to other websites and to share with friends and neighbors. If, if I win, it's going to be on the strength of the people of the Ninth District and people who care about 
healthy food and uh, family farming and local economies around the country. That's what it's going to take both. Uh, my opponent just has too much money for me to, to muster uh, enough resources within the district. I'm going to need folks around the country. So some of it is, is uh, getting involved and, and considering support. A very big part of it, though, is also realizing that I'm not the only one, that there's actually a, uh, a number of um, unconventional candidates, let's say non-lawyer, non-career politician candidates that have entered in Virginia and in other parts of the country. And, and a number of them farmers or people with connections to uh, farm and food businesses. So just imagine if a few of us get in this time and a few more the next, and pretty soon we could have a groundswell. Uh, I, I'm certainly not saying that uh, farmers have all the answers, but just to bring some balance to to this debate and even more than balance to interject some excitement and some new ideas. So I think if people link and share and basically create a national dialogue because right now people are either angry, which I think is mostly on the right of the political spectrum, or discouraged, which is more the center and the left. And neither of those are a, a good basis to have a political conversation. What we need, I think, reaching out beyond our normal base is to uh, get beyond the anger, get behind, beyond the discouragement, and have a conversation about what's possible. Because I, I think we're demonstrating all around the country that better things are possible. We really can have healthier farms that make better incomes for farmers, that provide better wages for farm workers, and ultimately provide healthy foods to the community. But that doesn't just happen. That's a, that's a matter of investment in those farms and in, and in community infrastructure, and it's a matter of uh, changing policy, like we've talked about with the patent rights uh, and big corporations. So there's a lot to do, but the, the foundation we need is millions of people, literally, engaged in the debate, more knowledgeable about it, and with a sense of hope for uh, a significant alternative. Well, I think that the American people, by nature, are hopeful. And I agree, there's a lot of anger and a lot of discouragement. You know, my daughter, who's 25, said to me the other day that she wants to live a self-directed life. And I thought, what a beautiful observation, and how many young people have you met who say the same thing? We want to be, we are an independently driven people. Whether we're writers, musicians, artists, farmers, there are people who want to work independently for a better world. And yet there are things that get in the way. And we need leadership in Washington to help make it so that we can live up to our fullest potential. You know, the the pursuit of happiness, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other thing that encourages me, is that young people are coming to the sustainable ag, food and farming movement. They're coming to the local economy, the sort of local living economy movement in big numbers. And these are the exceptional young folks, your daughter, my kids, lots of them out there. But they're growing in numbers. They're really smart. They're really dedicated to making their lives count for something. It's not just about me. And so it's really exciting. It's kind of like the 60s generation, but much more sober and focused. And I've got a lot of support in the campaign for that, but more importantly, I'm just seeing that all the time. We've had it on our farm. Uh, we have young people working there. I think the the next step, though, is that many of those young people are trying to create independent lives to try to better their own 
household, reduce their own footprint, lead, you know, be responsible in every respect. But many of those same people don't hold out much hope for the political process. Mm. So I think the the next step would be absolutely support them and enable them to build these independent, often entrepreneurial lives, but also get them re-engaged in the political process. I mean, right now, who would want to be engaged? It's just such a mess, and it's so corrupted by money. But if we can start to take the political process back to the citizenry, where it belongs, away from the moneyed interests and back to the citizenry, and get some of that youthful energy and ideas into the political process as well as into building local economy and, and good lives, then I think we can really, really begin to turn it around. Well, and I love your idea of using stories because I think that there are stories that are told through the media or the traditional media, the corporate-owned media, that set one example. And then there are the stories that you've seen the people that you've spoken to who have shown that it can be a different way. And I believe we need these stories to set examples, and we need good role models such as yourself, both in the community and in government. I see that too, Anthony. I I see uh, a disengagement from government, and I always try to remind young people that, even older people actually who have disengaged, that we are the government. We just have to be involved, don't we? Yeah, you know, in the final analysis, we really only have two choices. We can either get involved and do our best to make it a little better, a little more just, a little more humane, a little more sustainable, or maybe a lot, uh, or we can stay out. And if we stay out, we're largely ceding our vote and our, our political power probably to people with very different values from us. So it's really that there's not, as the old saying was, there's no such thing as being uninvolved in one way or another we're we're making a statement and making some kind of a contribution it, it's sort of like shopping in a way i mean it's similar to that people say oh i don't have time for the farmer's market oh i don't have time to have look for organic or i don't have the money for it but if we consistently support the corporate food system with our dollars then we are clearly capitalizing them and empowering them to build a few more fast food restaurants and a few more big boxes, uh, often at the expense of better eating and better economic opportunities. So I think the political process is the same way. We really can't be uninvolved. We can just give up our power. But, you know, again, when the process has seemed so disempowering and so foreign and so corrupted by money, as it does to most people, because it is, <laughs> and then it's no wonder that people have given up. I, part of why I'm running is to reinstill some hope that maybe we can all turn this thing around. Maybe I can be one of a new crop of people that can help begin to return the political process to, to ordinary people. That's a lot of the positive response I'm getting. Anthony, we're going to have to close on that inspirational comment. We've been speaking with Anthony Flacavento. He is an organic farmer living near Abington, Virginia, running for the 9th District Congressional seat in Virginia. He is an award winner. He's received many honors for his work in economic and sustainable communities. He's the winner of the Ford Foundation Leadership Award, the Changing the World Award, the Arthur Smith Environmental Stewardship Award. You've been selected by Blue Ridge Magazine in 2009 as one of Central Appalachian's most important agents for positive change. You've even been recognized by Barbara Kingsolver. So I want to just thank you for doing the hard work of running for political office, 
going beyond the farm now and going to Washington to make a real difference for all of us in this country. We will direct our listeners to the website A49, that's A-F-O-R-9.com, to learn more about Anthony. And uh, thank you so much for being my guest. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Melinda. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Anthony, and thank you again, listeners. Mm-hmm.